Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, abortion and the Supreme Court. All right, Richard, the topic today is abortion, the Supreme Court handing down a verdict this week overturning certain abortion-related regulations in Texas. What was in question here was what constitutes what's called an undue burden when it comes to regulating abortion. That's a standard, at least as it relates to abortion, that comes out of the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case in 1992. That, of course, downstream from Roe v. Wade. So before we even get into the Texas case, why don't you just give us a whirlwind tour, a quick primer on the Supreme Court jurisprudence on this issue that got us to this case? Okay, well, um, it starts off, of course, with Roe v. Wade, and I can still remember since I was teaching that how everybody was laughing themselves silly about this case going before the Supreme Court, given the fact that nobody believed there was anything remotely like a federal question. But that was before they met Justice Blackmun, and what he did is he found, well, we're not quite sure what, either an invasion of a right to privacy or equal protection or something of the sort. Uh, He divided the world into trimesters and essentially said that in the first trimester, it's hard to regulate anything. Second trimester, you could do safety, and the third trimester is kind of be my guest. And there were large numbers of people who thought this was absolute judicial usurpation of the a legislative function, and there were many people who took exactly the opposite position about fundamental rights. I would have thought at the time that the majority of the people in this country were incredulous about the decision, but it kind of lasted better than anybody expected. So but. After 20 years in, the general view was, I think, two to one on both questions. You know, by and large, we think abortion is a moral wrong, and by and large, we think that the state ought to stay out of it. Casey comes up, and it's the new Justice Kennedy is on the court and so forth, and the question is whether or not the Republicans are going to make good on their vow to overturn this issue and give it back to the state. And they didn't. You have a complicated set of restrictions involved, and I don't even remember what they all were, but the test that they kind of came up with was very simply, uh, you can, in fact, protect the life of the mother and the life of the child, but you cannot put an undue burden on the right to have an abortion. And the word undue burden has to be stressed and underlined. It's not impossibly unvague. It's vague. It's sort of like the due process clause. It means too much relative to the end and it invites balancing and balancing always invites a disagreement. We then had the Cathcart situation about prohibitions on um, whole life abortion and these were upheld and the question is why I had to do again with the undue burden. Justice Kennedy seemed to show more discretion in that case than he did in Casey. And so the question was, when you came up to this current case, um, and you have Texas announcing a series of restrictions on, A, the quality of the ambulatory care units having to be equal to standard surgical units, and B, the accreditation of a physician having to have a license to go into, or privileges to go into a hospital, I think it was within 30 miles of the particular case, whether these two restrictions would be regarded as an undue restriction on abortion, given that it seemed as though a large number of clinics, particularly those which served poor women in rural areas, would have to shut down. And to my amazement, frankly, the um, Fifth Circuit, when it took the case, basically upheld the restrictions, and the thing went up to the Supreme Court, and by a five to three vote, what they did is it reversed it, knocked it down, and created what the New York Times called a great victory for abortion rights. Okay, so 
this undue burden standard here in Texas, we should also set the set the stage for this, that these regulations, the state was imposing them under the aegis of essentially health and safety. This was also yes. in the aftermath of the big um, national outcry over the story of uh, Kermit Gosnell. So Texas imposes these um, restrictions on their abortion clinics, many abortion clinics saying that, look, this is basically driving us out of business. Walk us through how the court responds once they hear this case. Okay. Well, the first thing, of course, is that the issue is an extremely familiar one. Um, you have to go back to Lochner against New York, and the same question arose, whether or not certain kinds of protections for workers in industrial plants were or were not a legitimate burden on the um, right of people to enter into contracts. So it's a familiar issue, and the more you care about the right, the tougher you will look at the health care standards. And, and in this particular case, um, what happens is all the people who insisted that this was designed to sort of protect the women uh, were people who were generally opposed to abortions. And all the people who were in the business of trying to provide this care were generally adamantly opposed to it. And what they said, in effect, was that these are just wildly over-restrictive to any legitimate health care interest. The reason that I think the plaintiffs won on appeal was because of the outstanding job that the district court judge did in going through all the arguments pro and con about the extent of the burden and the possible justifications for it. So uh, you read Justice Breyer's opinion for the majority five, and, and what it does is it simply sets out in extent so all of the particular findings in question. And I have to say uh, two things. One is I thought that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided in 1973, and I actually wrote a piece in the Supreme Court review to that effect. Um, and two, but if in fact it is the law of the land and it was not criticized or questioned here, and the issue is whether or not the undue burden standard had been met, I think, in effect, that the plaintiff's case was extremely strong in this particular case, and I, in fact, would have voted with the majority, bracketing, of course, the question of why it is the state is in the, uh, rather the court is in the abortion control business to begin with. Uh, the Breyer opinion is simply more powerful than the dissents that were written, and Justice Thomas tries to give all sorts of reasons to explain why this is a kind of market extension over the way in which one looked at the health care issue before, mainly a attacking the level of strict scrutiny that was given. But when you start to read these kinds of regulations, just ask yourself this simple question. Do you think that these regulations are going to save a single life relative to what exists right now? When you have all of these abortion groups who are desperately concerned about the welfare of the mother, giving you an opposition kind of result. Did the state actually produce some hard numbers which indicated why it is that the lack of admitting privileges or the um, level of care inside the facilities was were too low to make these things? No, it was all done at a hypothetical level. And one of the things, Troy, that one always ought to remember is that there are two ways in which you look at health restrictions. One is you have a program which has never been tested, and you have to speculate one way or another the way in which this thing is going to work. And my general attitude there is I'm willing to give the state a little bit more deference because experiments in life are always somewhat risky, and maybe they've got a point. But when you've had an existing practice which has been going on for 30 years or more and somebody comes and says there's a mortal peril to the women, what you want them to do is to basically show incidences, dead bodies, botched abortions or something of the sort uh, which would make good on the claim. And what happened here, the defense on the undue burden issue was all done at a very high level of abstraction which I thought to be completely unpersuasive. 
You mentioned a moment ago the sort of laudatory editorial that this decision engendered from the New York Times. Sort of the counterpoint to that was an editorial from National Review, which I want to read an excerpt of to you just because it touches on something that we haven't mentioned yet, which is a procedural question that came up here. Uh, Quoting here. In, in 2015, this is from the piece. In 2015, Whole Women's Health successfully petitioned the Supreme Court to stay, then hear its case against Texas's newest abortion regulation, what we're talking about here. Whole Women's Health, a limited liability company, has no constitutional right to abortion, and in normal circumstances, the court does not allow a third party to sue to vindicate someone else's constitutional rights. But to quote Justice Thomas's dissent, this is sort of a subquote here. The court employs a different approach to rights that it favors. How do you respond to that, Richard? I don't think that's correct. I mean, what happens is uh, if you go back to these kinds of cases, uh, these are organizations that are directly impacted by the restriction because they're going to be thrown out. And their claim is that you're putting us out of business. That's a discrete and concrete industry that they struck. If you want to talk about sort of abstract third-party claims, it would be somebody, say, like the Catholic Church coming in and saying, we think that these things are terrible when in fact they're not in line with the business or Planned Parenthood as a just pure advocacy body getting themselves involved. Um, The other thing, of course, is I think it is peculiarly weak under these circumstances to start to use the standing argument because that only tells you who the proper plaintiff is. One of the issues that came up in Roe against Wade was whether or not um, after the time for the particular abortion had passed, uh, the plaintiff Roe in that circumstance still had standing or whether the case was moot, and which means that it would be dis- dismissed. And what Harry Blackman said quite rightly, in my view, is if we dismiss this one, everyone we will have to dismiss because pregnancy only runs nine months, and what's really going on in these particular cases is that the legal cycle takes four or five years. There were also health care providers in that case who were involved, who had standing under these circumstances. So I don't think that there's anything particular about this. I, I might also add, uh, generally speaking, that I think that these kinds of standing rules are wild destructive under these circumstances. Uh, the real question is, is anybody going to be put into a position to allow the challenge to start to take place? And I think given the pervasive nature of the situation, an organization makes perfectly good sense. If they want to join individual plaintiffs, that's fine. Uh, but it is extremely important that the standing doctrines not be used to make sure that uh, really powerful constitutional arguments will never be heard by the court. Um, one has to understand there's a real difference on this level between libertarians like myself and judicial conservatives like Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, um, when they start talking about discrete pocket-backed interest uh, uh, requiring for standing, it's completely inconsistent, in my view, with the constitutional structure. Whenever government is challenged for simply going beyond its particular powers in some case, I think that if the action is one for ultra-virus, anybody who wants to try to enjoin it should be entitled to go into court, which covers not only legal disputes, but technically speaking, but equitable disputes. That is where you're saying the government has acted beyond its permissible powers. So I don't think that that particular claim is true at all. And in fact, um, you know, there are other cases where they do the same thing um, one way or the other, for example, in some of these environmental harm cases. And in some cases, I think the suits are sound and some they're not. But I don't want them to be decided on standing grounds. Generally, it's the safer thing is to decide them on the merits. And in this particular case, bracketing the issue as to whether or not Roe and Casey are rightly decided, if in fact the undue burden test applies, uh, then the decision of the five was correct. So 
give us kind of the just the concise sort of real world impact of this after this decision what kind of abortion regulations can states get away with? What What are the outer limits? Well, first of all, when you use the word get away with, I mean, it, it seems Probably to me that, that kind of concedes the point that they're having the, the, the ultimate desire is to wipe out the right to an abortion, whereas the collateral means are just an excuse for doing it. I mean, there certainly are kinds of things that, uh, that you should be able to do. I don't think anybody would question that certain kinds of dangerous procedures that result in the death of women could not be used. Uh, but on the the other hand, it's, they're not going to be used anyhow because who wants to die when they have an abortion? I think certainly any regulation that talks about the question as to whether or not you have to give extra protection uh, to minors to see whether or not the girls in question do or do not want to have an abortion would be perfectly appropriate under the circumstances. And more generally, if in fact you actually run an impartial investigation and you found various kinds of centers that did pose real risks, I think you could take either individual administrative action to deal with these kinds of things, or you could take some general rules. Uh, the point is what you want to do in the abortion cases is to figure out the general framework of regulation that you apply to other kinds of health care services and carry it over here. And one of the ways in which the state can do this most comfortably is to simply apply general propositions which cover, say, normal obstetrical clinics and use them in this particular case. And so if you had certain requirements for obstetricians that made make sense in the abortion case, case, it would be fine. But remember, there are differences. Abortions usually are not that complicated a procedure. They're just morally very, very controversial. Certain kinds of obstetrical practices are extremely complicated and require a much higher degree of sophistication. And you won't find those being performed in outpatient clinics. So the market itself does a pretty good job of sorting. And that means I think the burden is pretty much going to be rather heavy on the state to prove a health and safety justification, given the fact that the people who run these clinics, the people who go to these clinics, and all the advocacy groups that champion these clinics are as concerned about the health of the mother um, as anybody else. And so I, I don't think that this is a real live area. I did not regard this as a close case, in fact. I thought it was perfectly transparent. And even though, as I said, uh, whatever you think about Roe v. Wade, this is not the way in which I think you could sensibly apply uh, the undue burden test. So the final question that I'll ask you then, have we reached, Richard, a kind of legal equilibrium where abortion is concerned? Here's the reason I'm asking you that. It's, it's been 44 years now since Roe v. Wade, and despite all the agita on, on both sides, um, the big case that we get this session is about health and safety regulations relating to abortion that really in the, the bigger scheme of this issue – are pretty modest. It seems like at this point in the courts, the game is being played between the 40-yard lines. Is that where we're staying for the foreseeable future? Well, that's exactly right. As far as I'm concerned, you won't get many of these cases. The Texas situation comes in a sort of a deep red state where there's a lot of fervor for it. Uh, you try to pass regulations like that in Texas or in New York, rather rather in California or in New York, and there'd be a riot on your hand. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of stuff there. And after this particular decision comes down, I think that the game is pretty much over. Uh, I do think that there is a possibility of seeing a lot of conservative justices on the Supreme Court who will 
will pull the trigger and overrule Roe v. Wade. Uh, but if that happened, my guess is there would be a constitutional amendment going back in the other way. When I wrote my book on the classical liberal constitution, I did comment on the abortion cases, um, indicating my initial objection to them and my current quiescence to it. And I introduced the notion of what we call a prescriptive constitution. Prescription is where if you um, violate somebody's rights over a long period of time, you create a right of your own. So if you keep on walking over somebody's land in order to get to the seashore, it turns out after 30 years, say, you get yourself a prescriptive easement and they can shut it down. Well, I think judicial decisions are like that. When they go on long enough and they are not overturned, they become embedded in the fabric of American constitutional law. And no matter what the originalists think, that that becomes the new political and the new constitutional equilibrium. And as you mentioned, 44 years is longer than any known period for prescription that takes place with respect to ordinary property rights. So in my view, the the large battle under these circumstances is indeed over. Uh, The battle that will remain, I think, uh, goes on other fronts. How much subsidies do you start to give to abortions and so forth? And and how much do you try to proselytize in order to get young women to avoid having abortions in one way or another? So it's not as though the issue is going to disappear. It's just the question of using further legal restraints against the established clinics, I think, is not going to be a successful tactic for the anti-abortion forces. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting findingideasathoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.